But this morning, the emphasis will be much more on teaching us, teaching me. There was a new book published by Sunaran that is titled Bullies and Saints. And I didn't read it, but I read about it. In a nutshell, the argument of the book is that Christianity has committed numerous atrocities throughout history. Christianity is, uh, in other words, the author did not whitewash the history. It was probably, I would think, probably mostly of Europe. I'm not sure what all that's where Christianity was. And uh, he didn't whitewash the history, and so he looked at the history of what Christians have done and and just simply brought it out. They have done the terrible thing that Christians have done in the name of Christianity. The main premise of the book is that people who committed this violence and persecution, such as the Crusades, the Inquisitions, the uh, against the Jews, the religious wars, they were true Christians. That's the premise. These atrocities were committed by Christians. That's the, uh, yeah. And the argument is that these Christians are, were deeply flawed. They were wrong, but they were Christians. And since they were Christians, they're a part of our history. They're a part of my history. Since I'm a Christian and they were Christian, they're a part of my history. And that's why they have the title, Bullies and Saints. <laughs> they're both one and the same. Uh, we actually are stemming from the stream and lineage of the Anabaptists, and as the Anabaptists are separatists, they are sectarian in nature. We believe not everyone who says they are a Christian is a Christian. Not every Christian church that says it's a Christian church, or not, uh, not everybody that says they are a Christian church is actually a Christian church. There are people who are Christian in name only. And so in that sense, we take no responsibility for the Crusades as Christians. We don't. Or the Inquisitions or any of the other atrocities that were committed in the name of Christ. We believe that Christian bullies, Christians who commit these kind of things, now, we, we are, we're not judges, but we, in general, say they are false Christians. They're not part of our history. Then there's another designation that may be more relevant for us, because in today's era, there's not so many Christians killing other Christians. Even though there's Christians killing people, they're not doing it in the same way as they did in the past. Another designation that may be relevant for our day is the term Bible-believing Christian. Are you a Bible-believing Christian? Anyone want to put a hand up? Bible-believing Christian. Okay, see if you're all awake. Are all Bible-believing Christians the same? And is it enough that we all believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior? 
Or is there a difference between Bible-believing Christians and kingdom Christians? Christians who live by the kingdom teachings of Jesus. Jesus actually never used the word Christians. Of course he didn't. It wasn't coined until after he was the Christians were around. But he did talk about his disciples. He defined his disciples very clearly. And he set for visible criteria that anybody watching could actually see whether these disciples could judge who is disciples and who is not. Because he is clear enough in his criteria that you could see that. Anyone could see that if they understand Jesus' message. The last message I said, Christian kingdom Christianity is a particular system of belief. It's a belief of what Jesus came to earth to do and what he wants his people to do. So kingdom Christians believe Jesus came to bring in a new kingdom, not reshuffle the old one. The new kingdom has a new set of values, not opposed to the old, but in replacement of it. Jesus personally replaces Old Testament law with his kingdom ethics. And the early Christians recognized the kingdom of God as their primary authority in their life. I say, well, the Lord is authority. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. But this they, they avoided the entanglements of the earthly kingdoms and its wars and its politics because they were first and foremost citizens of Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom with its values, with its ethics, with its priorities did not mesh with the kingdoms of the world. The two, the two are like the opposite poles. They don't mesh. So they were first citizens of God's kingdom and only secondarily citizens. And they recognized Jesus as their ultimate lawgiver and his sermon on the mount as their primary constitution. Now, I looked up the word constitution. Uh, a constitution is, well, the definition is, it's a body of fundamental principles or established precedents according to which a state or other organization is acknowledged to be governed. So a constitution is a fundamental principles or established precedents according to which a state or other organization is acknowledged to be governed. So if you have, every kingdom has a king, and this king would be Jesus, and every kingdom is then governed by values and principles and rules and laws which stem from and align with the king. We've seen that very clearly in this last election when you've seen it about as much as you can. Even though we don't have a king in this country, which is actually why the colonies wanted to break free from the king is they felt the king had too much rule, even though they had a um, parliament back then. But what we see is when you have a president in our country, his values and so on immediately 
get pushed onto the people as much as possible. You don't have a king where he can do it absolutely. But you do see that. And so every kingdom is governed by values and principles and rules and laws which stem from and align with the king. This morning, I will attempt to give an overview of Jesus' fundamental principles in which his disciples are acknowledged to be governed. If we're part of Jesus' kingdom and have a constitution, we will acknowledge that this is our constitution. We... um, not just us, but all of, all of Christ's people. So, we'll look at an overview of the constitution of the kingdom. So, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. I have never done this, and you have to understand that we will need to be extremely brief, but we will go through Matthew chapter 5, verse, uh, chapter five through chapter 7. And we'll just hit the high points as we go without any depth. We will look at the main sections. And the sermon begins, like you're familiar with, with the Beatitudes. It ends with the illustration of the wise and foolish man. You know, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like that wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So, whatever name we give these, Christ, these people, we can give them disciples, you can call them Christians, you can call them kingdom Christians, you can call them followers of Jesus, or whatever. It is certain that they will be doing the things that Jesus taught here and if they are not doing them well their house will not stand so a simple way to understand the sermon is that it is to be a foundation it's something you built yourself on and again you have to you have to take it the whole way back to the king. <laughs> the kingdom, you have to always take it back to the king. We say, You're, this is the foundation. I thought Jesus is the foundation. He is. Jesus is the foundation. But this stems from the Lord Jesus. So, am I a wise man or woman, or am I actually foolish? Am I a true Christian, or am, am I one by name only? So at Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, we see the entrance. We see the entrance into this kingdom. Yesterday, I went to a, an auction, a consignment sale at Riceville out here. And it, we, we didn't go there at the beginning. We were there when it was already in process for half an hour or so. And we knew when we Something was going on when we got there. There were people all over the place. We finally got parking over near the next block, next road, walking a long ways to get to the auction. Lots and lots of people there. Well, here is the entrance to the kingdom of God. And this gate, this entrance is never crowded. It won't 
ever be crowded here. In fact, Jesus explains later in the sermon here, he explains, he said, um, straight, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The straight, the narrow gate, the straight way, here is the gate. I know you can define the gate in some other ways. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You can call that a gate. And uh, Paul said, there's no other name under heaven where we must be saved. And so that's a narrow gate. But this is a gate into the kingdom. And uh, not many people are here. And the reason this is a gate is because no one is born into this kingdom. We actually come in, we actually need to be naturalized because we come into the kingdom after we're born. And all who come in the kingdom will come this way. And those who come into the kingdom are blessed. There are many, many blessings here. They're blessed by God. And coming into this kingdom is both initial and it's ongoing. It's both, it's a both, um, it's both a initial experience and it's also an ongoing lifestyle. And we'll explain that later. But what I want to encourage us here as we're looking at these and, and we, we, we may actually, let, let's say, let's say this way. This is the gate. It's straight. It's narrow. But you ever hear the saying, uh, get under the spout where the glory comes out, something like that? I think I'm saying it right. Get under the spout where the glory comes out. You look at all these blessings, there's a lot of glory coming out here. Yeah, you need to go underneath. You've got to go down to the spout till you get the glory. But there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a spout here. There's glory here. Okay, poor in spirit. Uh, we discussed this a little bit in our Bible study. What does poor in spirit mean? It means a number of things, but uh, to keep, I'm gonna all these, all these. I'm gonna, I cannot take them in all the different avenues. I'm gonna have to just brush over them. But the poor in spirit means to be convicted and devastated for our sins, our failures to live according to God's standard. I have sinned, and I have come short of the glory of God, and I realize it. I'm convicted of my own spiritual poverty and my own wickedness and sin. I am poor in spirit. The opposite would be proud in spirit. You have any idea who in the Bible, New Testament, that Jesus used as an example of someone who was proud in spirit? You have any idea? Okay, to talk about this Pharisee, he was standing in the temple praying, right? See, Father, I'm glad I'm not like other men. That is proud of spirit. That's the exact opposite of poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is that other person. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the gate. And God, uh, Jesus said, yeah, he did go down justified, left the temple justified. 
If I am truly poor in spirit, convicted of my sins, then I am, and I believe God is going to judge me for it, then I'm going to mourn. I'm going to mourn over my sins. That is called repentance. I'm going to mourn over my sins, and I'm going to turn away from them. See, John and Jesus both preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the entrance. Uh, James 4, going to read a few verses here. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness, you sinners. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. If we would have lots of time, we would actually go into James. James is pretty well a commentary of of the Sermon on the Mount. There's, there's so many carryovers. Blessed are the meek. Meekness is the outgrowth of the first two. Once we have been devastated over our sins and once we have repented, then the Lord lifts us up. Then your attitude is one of humility, of gentleness, of kindness, because of the rest that has come on your heart. The first two beatitudes are negative. We see our pride and our powerless and our envy and our sin. We need to see that before we can move on to meekness. Meekness is the beginning of the rebuilding process that where God can now work in us. Um, the whole idea of breaking up the fallow ground before you can rebuild. You know, before you can actually plant a crop, now they do it with no-till nowadays, but before you can plant a crop, you've got to break up the soil, and then you can plant it. And that's what's happening here. The soil has been broke up. Now there's planting starting to take place, and there's meekness. God creates out of nothing, and until a person is nothing, can God create something good in him. It's a picture of a wild horse being tamed that strength of that horse is now channeled and productive all your gifts all your abilities that you had before you were poor in spirit you still have but now they are used for the master that is meekness According to the Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, meekness towards other people consists of three things. The bearing of injuries, the forgiving of injuries, and the returning of good for evil. In other words, there are things come against us. And because we are under the control of someone else, like a horse under the control of a master, we no longer need to fight the lash at wrongs or injuries real or imagined done to us. There is no insults or grievances done to me that is greater than what I have already done to others. That might not be true in in every extent, but it is largely true. And so the question comes, are you, am I, strong enough to be meek? 
Are you strong enough to look at evil? Or have evil done to you? And give a gentle response. Are you strong enough to turn the other cheek? To love your enemies? And your supposed friends? See, this is the counter rebellion. This is how we will win. What does it say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is how we will get what we would in the natural fight for. But because we surrender it, God will give it to us. This is how we are kingdom Christians. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, hunger is a basic human desire. What is as familiar as a crying baby crying for milk? So, what do... Babies cry for, well, I told it, they cry for milk. What do spiritual babies cry for? Well, here it says they cry for righteousness. They cry for, well, let's see, what is righteousness? Well, a working definition of righteousness is faithfulness to God manifested in right attitudes and right actions. It's both inward and outward. And so... Yes, we have repented, and yes, we have this grace coming into our lives, and we have blessings, but we recognize deficiencies in us. And that deficiency in us gets us to cry out to God, God, this is this in my life. I have this wrong attitude towards someone, And I have it in my life, and I don't want it. And you cry, you hunger, and you thirst for righteousness. Cry for it like a hungry baby. Now, I said at the onset, these Beatitudes are both initial and they're ongoing. There is actually places and errors. There are uh, experiences of victory. You actually are crying out to God in an area, and you actually experience victory. But there are more and more and more. So it's an, it's, it's, an, it's an initial process, but it's also an ongoing process. And the promise is that they shall be filled. God promises to actually meet that crying need that we have for righteousness. If you're hungry or thirsty, you don't need anyone to prod you to drink. If you are thirsty... Now, some of us, I understand you need to set your timer to tell you that you ought to drink more water. (laughs) But if you're healthy and you are thirsty, you don't need someone tell you, go and drink some water. You will seek it. You will seek the water. Because it's a very basic desire to come from within. So I have a question to ask each one of us. Do you need someone to prod you on to righteousness? Do you? You will not be filled if you need to be prodded all the time. I mean, obviously, if you need to be prodded and you you do something, you have that. But you will not be filled. 
maybe we need to turn off our distractions and go back and re-enter the gate and then follow the upward path again until we are hungry ourselves for righteousness. Okay, blessed are the merciful. There's several definitions here. Number one, talking about us being merciful, you are blessed if you're merciful. It means not giving someone what they deserve. You have the power, you have the ability to pay back or destroy someone, and he deserves it, but you don't do it. That's mercy. In fact, that's what God did to us. God could have destroyed us, and he had every right to do so, and he did not. He did be mercy. That's one. The other is, of course, like the Good Samaritan. When Jesus gave that parable of the Good Samaritan, and then he asked the man, now who was neighbor? The man said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So those are the definitions of mercy. So we are blessed if we are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart. And this is just a number of different ways. A pure in heart, a purity means they're not, they're not mixed with impurities. In other words, it's, it's, um, it's not an alloy. It's a, uh, can't think of the right word, but basically pure means pure. Pure water. Yeah, I don't have, well, I can't see any dirt in here. But um, it's pure water, close. Purity, pure in heart means there's purity in your heart. It's not hypocrisy. There's not play acting. There's not pretending. You are clean on the inside of the cup as well as the outside of the cup if you are pure in heart. And this purity of heart, completely permeates the entire Sermon on the Mount. The entire Sermon on the Mount could be encapsulated purity of heart because you cannot serve two masters, he says. He, um, in the words, you will serve one or the other. You cannot serve. You, you need to have a pure heart. You're going to serve God. And, and when he talks about um, adultery or a non-lusting heart or a murder or um, speech, Purity across the board. It's the whole way through the sermon here. So blessed are the pure in heart. Just like Jesus later on says in the sermon, seek ye first the kingdom of God. The first means it's that purity, purity of heart seeking the kingdom. Single-minded in devotion to the cause. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is the crowning the crowning um, beatitude. This is actually the last, this is the seventh beatitude, and it's the last beatitude. We'll have to qualify that. But it's the crowning. Seven is the number of perfection. And it, it, it's a pathway. It, it's, you, you need the first one before you can get to the second. You need the second before you can get to the third and on and so on. And what is peacemaking? Well, you won't be doing much peacemaking. We won't be doing much peacemaking if we don't have the first six in place. And peacemaking is 
actively reconciling and restoring broken relationships. Now, peacemaking is counter to our natural human drives. We naturally cause pieces, not peace. It's the opposite of what we like to do. People get in our way. When someone has done something wrong to us, we want to see them squirm. We want them to pay some kind of price. That's how we are naturally. Peacemaking is the opposite of that. It's counter. And need I tell you that peacemaking is hard work? It involves risk. Peacemaking is a battle. Someone said we can wage war. Well, we can also wage peace. Waging peace is a good battle, but it is a battle. But blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. And I have to give one one qualifier here and, and a, one verse here. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. When we're doing peacemaking, we cannot compromise. And, and James, again, the commentary where we, where we have this in James 3.17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And if you look at those things, you have actually most of the Beatitudes right in that one verse. So... Do not compromise when you're making peace. The peace need to be first pure, then peaceable. So those are the seven Beatitudes. And the reason to call them seven is all of them are in the third person. Blessed are the, blessed are the poor. And, and this, these seven are the, they are the straight gate. This is the restricted gate. It's the narrow way. It's actually the pathway of conversion, and it's the pathway of the Christian. It's where self is actually dethroned. These seven verses, these seven Beatitudes, is where self is actually dethroned, and Christ takes its place for those who, who go through them. The missionary, Stanley Jones, asked Gandhi why he had not become a Christian. And Gandhi, uh, Gandhi replied, he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Now, if, if Gandhi were here and he would see my life, what would he say about me and, and you? And the question is, how much of the beatitude and reality of that are in my life? Am I a genuine kingdom Christian? Well, the first seven are given, the seven are given in the first person, then in the third person, then the last, what we call the beatitudes, are actually given in the second person. Blessed are ye, and it becomes second person, and The first seven are about character. They are the character virtues that Jesus can bless. The eighth one is actually a a blessing of consequence. 
Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If we Christians live in the reality of those first Beatitudes, both inwardly and outwardly, and then suffer for it, that is suffering for righteousness' sake. Joseph suffered for righteousness' sake. We heard it this morning, you know. He was actually did what was right, and he suffered for it. And uh, in First Peter chapter two, verses twenty to twenty-one, uh, Peter brings a little bit of flesh on it. He said, "For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently?" This is acceptable with God. So in other words, if you do well, if you do what's right, and you suffer for it, and then you still take that patiently. So not just suffering for righteousness' sake, but also suffering it patiently. (laughs) That is acceptable with God. For here, here, even unto where you call, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So I actually three three steps there. First of all, live righteously. Then when you are suffering for it, second step, and the third step, you respond well to that suffering, then that's the blessing. The next section is about salt and light. Why are we not immediately taken to heaven if we come through the straight gate the first time? And we come through there. Why don't God just take us right home to heaven? Well, we have a job to do, don't we? And in verse 13, it says, Ye are the salt of the earth. Then he talked about the salt losing its savor. Salt's primary purpose back then was for its preservative value. Now, it also has a savory value, makes food taste better and all that. But the world that we are in is rotting, it's decaying, it's stinking. And salt is a preservative that halts the rotting of meat. Meat, without refrigeration, must have a preservative. Salt does that. And so do true kingdom Christians. They are preservative to the world. They keep the world from, well, the next is about the witness, the light. But they keep keep a preservative in the world. But one thing that salt must do, to remain a preservative is to not get contaminated. Here we come back to purity again. Salt actually never loses its savor. Salt remains salt, but if it actually gets contaminated with other things, it actually loses its effect. And so we, too, lose our preservative ability when we allow impurities in our lives, and these impurities can be personal impurities or they can be 
worldly things coming in that finally take our one single-minded kingdom emphasis into other areas, and we lose our purity. Or if we try to win the world by becoming like the world, using the world's music or entertainment or methods or psychology or clothing, we become contaminated. We lose our ability to be a preservative. In fact, we lose, completely lose our entire purpose of being here. And that's why God says, Jesus said, it's good for nothing. And salt, of course, must be spread in the meat to become a part of it, but it must never become part of the meat. And then we have light in this section. And light is a lighthouse. It's a guide because the world is a dark place. The world needs a light of heaven. And I like to think of a kind of talk about a city on a hill. I like to think more of the light is actually a community. I, can see, I see a church. I see a community, a light that shines where you see kingdom Christians living out the reality of heaven's constitution in that city. And I, I am seriously convicted. Because it's by avoiding the corruptions of the world that we are a light. And it's by exemplifying um, great responses in relationships that we are a light. And I see myself needing to go around to the gate again. Okay, verse 22. This is the next section here. For I say unto you, and no, I'm sorry, 22, for think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, I spoke about that in detail in the last message, so I'm not going to talk about it, only to give the conclusion. In Jesus' kingdom, he swept away the Mosaic law as a standard, and he reinstated God's original intent for righteousness among his people on the earth. So there's been a cleaning of the slate and a reinstating of a righteousness that he had in mind for his people. And then in verse 22, I think I had somebody. Okay, I said, I said verse 22, it was verse 17. Now verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the righteousness of those scribes and Pharisees? What righteousness is needed to enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, almost all, I'm going to use the term Bible-believing Christians, say that the, the, the Pharisees were the pretty well the most righteous people in their day. I mean, they... It, they, they had the highest standard. Now, they would qualify that and all that. But it, basically, the, the, the storyline goes, it, 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 the Pharisees, which tried the hardest to make it by their own works, that means we can't make it with our own works. So that means we need the imputed righteousness of Christ to get into heaven. Well, there's not a word of that in this context. In fact, it says the opposite. It says your righteousness 
Now, the whole thing about the imputed righteousness of Christ, and we're not going to get into that, but what we're going to focus on is what Christ is saying here. It's the righteousness coming out of your life, my life. Now, it needs to be the life that Christ produces in us. So it is Christ's righteousness, obviously, but it, it needs to be coming out of us. That's the righteousness that Christ is talking about. Clearly, throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Christ is talking about righteousness coming out of us. He's not talking about the right, imputed righteousness of Christ here. And what is righteousness? Well, true righteousness is right intention with right words and right deeds. Now, the Pharisees seem to value the exterior over the interior. They cared more about the public life than they did about private life. They cared more about the details than about the principles. And they cared more about actions than they did about motives. And the entire theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the opposite of what the Pharisees emphasized. There will be no pretenders in heaven. There will be no hypocrites. I want one balancer here. True righteousness does not pit motive against action. It's not an either or. You can have right actions or you can have right motives. It's not either or. It is a first and a second. That is true righteousness. You have a good motives, and then you have right deeds. And, this is a, and that is the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees' righteousness. But what if I look at myself and I recognize I do not have that righteousness that exceeds? That I don't have, I am convicted of my own thoughts, uh, of my own actions this past week. Do you remember where that gate is? That gate, go back to that gate and go back on in. Get under the spout where the glory comes out. Be poor in spirit and mourn and repent and walk along that pathway again. And then in verse 21 we enter actually the main body of the sermon. From, chapter, from verse 21 of chapter 5, the entire portion to chapter 7, verse 12, pretty well, is, is um, consists of command after command after command with illustrations and examples as a good teacher does. Do this. Don't do that. And this section ends, this entire section and over in verse 7, ends with the golden rule. And then what comes after that are four warnings for those who do not obey uh, God's commandments here. Now, Jesus, in his sermon, does in line, you know, remember I said about uh, a kingdom gets run according to the king's priorities, his priority is first character, and then it is action. And so he dealt, in the Beatitudes, he dealt with character, and then he gave some purposes, and now he's going to deal with, with, with actions. 
uh, obviously coming from right character and right motives. So this section, and this will be the, the rest of chapter 5, begins with a series of six. Ye have heard it was said, da-da-da-da-da. But I say unto you, and it says that six times. And here is the crux. This chapter is the crux that often separates Bible-believing Christians and evangelicals as commonly understood from kingdom Christians. Bible-believing Christians, unlike liberal Christians, take the word of God seriously. The difference is in the interpretation. Is the Bible a flat book? Or is it a step up? Or is it a new? Is the New Testament new? The prophets in the Old Testament always spoke in the second person when they said, Thus saith the Lord. And Jesus spoke in the first person, I say unto you. He is the king, and only he has the authority to establish a new constitution. And so we take this as a, as a new constitution. Because the coming of the kingdom did not mean that the end of normal life on earth is over. Instead, it meant the beginning of a time when the kingdom would penetrate the world like salt, like light, and like leaven. So, the six, and I, I'm going to say the six I say that Jesus says, and this is the, the what I would you know, what we understand the kingdom ethics, and we can't go through them. I'm just going to say the six. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. And I read that in the English Standard Version because it takes out a clause that is in some in the King James. None of the other translations has it except it has in asterisk or something. It says, well, this clause except... Um, Without a cause, that's it. <laughs> so you're angry with your brother, you're liable for ju- to judgment. Because anger is the seed of murder. Next one. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh to a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, for whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. But I say unto you, love your enemies, Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And these are hard sayings. And you might say, really, Jesus? Is this how this kingdom functions? Are you proud of your accomplishments yet? (laughs) 
Later, Jesus instructs his followers to ask and to seek and to knock. And to keep on asking and to keep on seeking and to keep on knocking until they get an answer. And so that is here for us with all these sayings that we must come here with hearts that want to obey, that are eager to obey. Hearts that then will ask and that will seek and that will knock until we find a way to obey. Because compromise in this kingdom is not an option. Okay, chapter 6. This chapter is going to be the shortest of all this, uh, of my. But this is actually a, is the, the do not chapter. Uh, it's a lot of ways you could qualify this. But uh, there's people, there's people who say Christianity isn't about do's and don'ts. And I'd like to say whoever said that Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. Because in here he says don't do it this way. Don't do it. Don't do it this way. But do it this way. This chapter is is filled to the brim of do's and don'ts. But the main point of this section, chapter 6, is to have an explicit trust in God. This chapter is very relational. It's It's, it propels us to have this relationship with God. Do, do Give your things in the sight of God. Fast in the sight of God. Pray in the sight of God. This is God. God will reward you. It's this intensely relational thing. It doesn't matter. Your reputation is not important. Um, the other things, <clears throat> your selfishness, all those things are, are just put aside. Your pride, our self-sufficiency, that is put aside because we have God. And when we have God, we have enough. And in fact, these other things, if, you, if we allow self-sufficiency or we allow reputation or other things to come into our life, it will take us away from God. Do not allow that to happen. Do not allow your treasures on earth and your self-sufficiency and your reputation and things take away. Those things are aside. It's you and God. Trust him. And it's an explicit trust in God. And the key phrase in this chapter would be that verse that we had before. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the rest of these things that you want, your selfishness, your reputation, all those things that you want, God will give them to you. Actually, in, in the, I, I actually misquoted that. <laughs> It was that that verse is in the context of uh, of uh, the thing that the Gentiles see, the food and drink and shelter and that kind of thing. So I was wrong there. God will take care of you if you have Him as first in your life and allow nothing to take that place. Tertullian, 
an early Christian had a conversation with a new Christian. I'm not sure if it was actually a conversation or whether it was a letter. I'm not sure. And this Christian became a Christian. He had an occupation that was at odds with the Christian life. In other words, his occupation and the Christian life didn't square. And so what shall I do? Apparently back then it was, I mean, you had your occupation. You couldn't just go get another job. In other words, if you didn't do what you were experiencing, you were had no way to make a living. And so he said, well, what shall I do? I, I, I must live. And Tertullian said, must you live? He said, you must be faithful, but must you live? And it puts the things in the proper context. No, we actually don't have to live. But we do need to be faithful. And so chapter 6 challenges us on that. The kingdom Christian is to be faithful at all, regardless of the cost. Chapter 7, judging others. Is there a more common, natural, prideful activity of people than judging others? What is more natural to people than being the ability to see other people's faults, perceived or real, and making a judgment on it? That is as natural as breathing. We can see other abilities better than our own. I have a co-worker. And he has a close friend that is also a co-worker that he interacts with a lot. And I, know, I knew he gets tired of, of his, his co-worker calls him all the time. And I knew he gets tired of that. But anyhow, this co-worker of his called the dispatcher. He's actually the vice president of the company now. And told him that he's quitting. And the conversation, uh, according to this co-worker, my co-worker's co-worker, that's mine too, but uh, the third person out, I, I don't always know if he's, what he says is true or not, but he said that the vice president of the company hung up on him. And then my co-worker, second person out, said, that is really rude. And, uh, and he just Hang, you don't hang up on somebody. You don't do that. And then I, I knew a little bit about it. I said, did you ever hang up on that man also? The third person out. Yeah, but, I mean, the vice president, he would have a, you know, he, he would be. So, that, anyhow, what I'm trying to explain is he did the same thing that he was accusing the other person. Now, which one of us hasn't ever done that? I have. And I suppose you may have, too. We excuse our own behaviors for whatever reason it is, but we judge others. Kingdom Christians learn somehow not to judge others in a way that would be harsher than they judge themselves. 1 Corinthians 13 4 to 8, charity suffereth long, and is kind, charity envieth not. 
vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. And right after judging, he talked about uh, the swine there, but right after that, after this judgment thing hits us between the eyes, maybe that's why Jesus says what he said next. Ask and keep on asking and seek and keep on seeking and knock with the persistent, with the promise that with persistence you will receive. And and maybe if we are persistent, if I say I'm going to make it personal. If I am persistent in this, I will stop judging other people more harshly than I do myself. And then this passage, this area ends with in context. Therefore, all things, verse 12, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And that's what we call the golden rule. And it's in the context of judging. Don't judge anyone in the way that you don't want to be judged yourself. <clears throat> Nor should you judge the one who judges you wrongly in a way that you don't want to be judged when you judge him wrongly. You know, it goes both ways. So you're not supposed to judge someone else. But let's imagine someone judges you wrongly, improperly, and you are judged. Well, then don't treat him in a way that you wouldn't want him to treat you if you would judge him wrongly. It's, it's completely inclusive. And we do. We all do. If you are judged wrongly, give it to God and trust him and love your judger or enemy And if you judge someone wrongly, then repent. So, that is the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. This is it. If you wish to become a follower of Jesus, this is the way. It's an impossible way, and yet it's a possible way. Because like, uh, like Jesus said there, when someone later on, when the disciples were talking to him about marriage, and not, not 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 divorcing, he said this statement: "With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible." And that's how this constitution is: with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so, with God, we can actually be kingdom Christians. And the rest of the sermon is just simply for, it's about exhortation and warning for them. <clears throat> the, warning, the warning number one is in um, verse 13, enter in the straight gate. It's a warning not to enter into the broad gate with the crowd. Avoid that broad gate gate like the plague and enter that restricted gate. And number two, 
is the warning that there will be false prophets. False prophets who look like Christians. They are wolves, but they're in sheep's clothing. And they will tell you, among other things, that the Sermon on the Mount is not the constitution of the kingdom. That it might be for another era or be limited to our personal life or it's what's in the heart that counts. Or we are saved by faith regardless of our actions. Or that Paul's, Apostle Paul's letters are the real constitution of the Christian church. In the end, they f- end up not following this constitution. Then the third one is about the warning of false professors. These, maybe I should look at it, um, not all who come to me saying, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And these are intensely religious people, and they're doing many religious things. But they are practicing iniquity. They're practicing lawlessness. They are acting without the authority of the king. The king has a constitution. This is how my kingdom is governed. And they are unconstitutional. Their actions do not line up with the constitution. And when they're taken to court, they lose in heaven's court because heaven's court, they go by the constitution. The whole thing about constitutional law, that happens in the courts all the time, especially the Supreme Court. Is it constitutional? And there's a whole definition of how to interpret the constitution. We could have another message on that sometime. But these people, these false professors, do not have constitutional grounds for their activity. It was illegal what they are doing. And then at the point where they're at, at the Supreme Court of Heaven, they have no more appeal, and they lose their appeal. So beware of the false professors. And then number four is the warning of the wise and the foolish men. And whether you're wise or whether you're foolish hinges on this phrase, everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, or doeth them not. That's, that's the phrase. Your house or your profession or your life will either stand or fall on response to Jesus' teaching. And, and in essence, Jesus cannot make it clearer to us. He said, my sayings, what in this in this message is is my is my word it's my will it's my constitution so the kingdom is a high standard it is actually a standard of perfection and i want us to remember i want us to remember god's grace if you look at this high standard and as we seek and knock and ask. In other words, I want to give this encouragement. God loves people. And God loves us. And God loves you. Each one individually. It, he is for us. And he wants to bless us. And he wants to see us blessed. God is the one who, who comforts us. He invigorates us. He strengthens us. 
all those things that he does to us, that's called God's grace. God's pouring of his power and his love into our lives are his grace. And by grace, we can actually please God. By grace, we can actually be that wise man. We can actually build on that rock. And our house can stand. We can actually be a salt in this earth. And we can be a light to this world. This kingdom message is a call to a new way of living that shows loyalty to another king. But it's only possible because of the extravagant generosity of that king. And I found this statement, and I actually forgot to write down the quote of who it came out of a a quote of a book. If at some point the good news of the kingdom does not sound like good news to us, it is likely it likely it will likely be because we are focusing on some hard thing that the kingdom people are called to do. We're focusing on a hard thing that we are failing and we would like to do and we can't. And we're focusing on that. And we're not focusing on the abundance of grace and power that God gives to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So even as we look at the Constitution and its high standard, remember our king. Our king. With God, all things are possible. And with God, you and I can actually be blessed in his kingdom. Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. (laughs) Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Okay, why don't we just, if we can, why don't we kneel for prayer here at the end? Lord, we had looked at your word. We thank you, Lord, as we think of the uh, the blessing you have in store for your people, which are for those who will come in the straight and narrow, the straight gate and will walk the narrow way. Lord, there are blessings here that that the world has no idea of. And Lord, as I look at them and look at their own, my own needs and my own deficiencies, and Lord, if we collectively look at them, I do pray, Lord, that you would truly um, bless us with the power and grace to be the people as you intend us to be. Lord, help us to have grace with those who may not see this in the way that we see it in this way. And Lord, uh, those who then, Lord, as we as we go through world through their, through life, Lord, and are misjudged and mistreated, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would grant us grace, Lord, to respond in this way. And Lord, uh, I know it's your purpose. It is your purpose to exemplify your people in this world. Even as the early early Christians said that the the blood of the martyrs is the seed. Of the church. Lord, it is through difficult times, it is through mistreatment, it is through hard times, Lord, that your your people in a, in a dark world can shine. So, Lord, I pray, may we shine as your people. 
May you help us. May you grow us up. May you prosper us in that path. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.